2 Corinthians chapter 10. We have been working our way through this book, and uh, we are in the home stretch. One or two more weeks, and, and we'll be done. We're not going to get through the whole outline today. I'm just going to get through the, the first part of it. And uh, as we've been saying since the very beginning, we went through 1 Corinthians, which was Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, and then 2 Corinthians, it's the second letter that we have. There was another one. We don't, we don't have that, that letter. But, but as we've been traveling through, one of the things that we've noticed throughout is that this is a church that's very divided, and, and they're divided into different groups. In, in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul would say, some of you are saying you're of Paul, some of you are saying you're of Peter, some of you are saying, I just follow Jesus, that sort of thing. And so they had different groups. In 2 Corinthians, we, we have Paul and he is writing against the false teachings and the false practices of some false teachers that are coming in. You see, Paul had started this church years ago, spends a year and a half there, and then ultimately hands the church off to another pastor, continues on his missionary journeys. And it's through a period of years, a number of teachers come into the church. We're going to find that, that they're false teachers. They're teaching things that are strange. They are, uh, they're doing things that are very strange. And they're becoming very, very popular in the church. One of the, the challenges that they had in the early church was that, and un, unlike us, they didn't have one place for the church to come together. So people would meet in homes, and you might have a 100 people in this home and 100 people in that home. Each of those homes, although they were one church, I would say, uh, we'd want to say one church united, but but they were very, very divided because this home church would have kind of a a pastor or teacher with this kind of bent and another one have this kind of bent. And so they they had a, a number of different teachings that were working their way through the church and creating all types of habits. So Paul is writing, Paul is writing uh, against some of those things. And they've been misrepresenting the gospel. They've been misrepresenting Jesus. They've been misrepresenting uh, what the ministry is. And, and they're becoming very, very, very popular in the church. So Paul, again, is writing. So I'm going to pick it up as we continue on in this in verse 1. Verse 1 kind of unlocks everything that we're going to talk about today. So we'll spend a few moments here. I'll read it in our Bibles first. He says, now I, Paul, and I, I want you to underline the word Paul, I myself urge you And he says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He says, I who am meek. Some of your Bibles will say, I who am timid. However your Bible says it, go ahead and underline that. My Bible says meek. He says, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. So that verse is going to unlock everything that we're going to talk about today. I've put it there on your outline from a literal translation. It's worded slightly different. But in a literal translation, it would say it like this. He says, and I, Paul, myself, and hopefully you underline that word, Paul, myself, do call upon you through the meekness and gentleness of the Christ. Underline that. And uh, what Paul is going to be saying here is when Jesus was on the earth in his earthly ministry, he chose to operate in ministry through meekness and gentleness. So Paul says, so I'm calling you to remember that, but based upon that, here's how I have chosen to do ministry. And he goes on and he says, who in presence, when I'm with you, he says, indeed am humble. And I want you to underline the word humble. Among you and being absent have courage toward you. So in in opposition to what the false teachers were doing in the church, and in opposition to the methods they were using and some of the things that they were teaching, Paul is saying this, and I want you to write this down. Paul says, choosing the ministry of Jesus as the example, 
Paul chose a humble approach to ministry. A humble approach to ministry. Jesus had modeled for Paul and for the church that, there, that true spiritual power is found in humbleness, uh, gentleness, and, and meekness. Gentleness and meekness. Not in throwing your weight around. So in like, in like fashion, when Paul came, he chose to do ministry with great humility because Jesus was the example as to how to do ministry. This was very different than what we've seen as we've traveled through the way that the false teachers were doing ministry and the things that they were doing and some of the things that they were teaching. They had confused Paul's meekness or humility with, with weakness. When Jesus was on the earth and they arrested him and they took him to be crucified, they, they found him to be very meek. He allowed them, but they confused his meekness with weakness. And uh, you and I know the story of Jesus that I could have as many angels as I want to step down right now, to step down right now, but I'm choosing this. Paul says, because that's how Jesus did ministry, I've chosen to do ministry this way, to which the false teachers were saying, you can't do ministry that way. Who's going to follow you if, if, if you operate in humility and meekness and gentleness? So again, very, very different than what the false teachers were doing. But I also wanted you to write down something else or underline in that verse, I had you underline the word Paul, Paul's name. Now, it's, it's important, if, if you're new to the Bible, one of the things that you'll find out as you travel through, for those of you who've been around the Bible for any length of time, you, you know this already, that when, when Paul, when he does ministry, his name is Paul. But when he was born, his mom named him Saul. Saul was his Hebrew name. So before Paul becomes a Christian, he's known as Saul. And in the book of Acts, he's referred to first as Saul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus. And uh, he's actually persecuting the church. When we find after his conversion, he's no longer being called Saul, he's being called Paul. Well, Paul is a Roman name, but, but why the change? Well, if you were to take the, the word Saul and you were to look at any, any dictionary, it would say something like this there in your outline. The word Saul, which is the Hebrew name that, that uh, was given to him at birth, means to demand. Everybody see that? It means to demand. But when Paul becomes a believer, he doesn't want that to be his name. So whether his mom gave him a middle name or he just chose this name, instead of being called Saul, he says, from now on, I'm going to be referred to as Paul. Well, what does Paul mean? Well, there on your outline, every Bible dictionary will tell you that Paul just means small or little. So unlike the false teachers who had come into the church, the way that they did things, Paul chose to operate in great humility. And when he did that, he says, and so much so that uh, instead of calling me Saul, demanding or to demand, he says, just call me Paul, which just means little. So the idea is I'm happy being little because my whole life is making Jesus look big. And it's not about pointing to me, it's about pointing people to Jesus. So that's the beginning of everything we're going to talk about today. So for Paul, it was all about Jesus and, and it was not about himself. The false teachers, if you were to look very close at their lives and their ministry, you would find that it was all about them and not about him. And so Paul goes to great lengths to say, I'll operate in humility. Don't call me big, call me little. I'm going to point people to Jesus because it's all about him. So that becomes the setup for the, the rest of the chapter. We're only going to get through the, the first five verses today. But then Paul says, so I ask, verse 2. Now how many of your Bibles say, I beg, something like that? It says uses the word beg. That's good. I like that word more because that's what he's doing. He's pleading with these people. And he says, 
I, I beg that when I'm present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against, and then every one of us has that word some, some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh, if we walked according to the flesh. Paul says, when, when I arrive, there are many in the church who are heeding what Paul is saying. They're repenting, they're coming back to the things that Paul taught and the ways that Paul taught that you should do things. There are others in the church, they're not repenting, they're continuing on. And so Paul says, I, I'm begging you so that when I arrive, I don't have to be bold to some. So the idea is I'm not going to be bold to the whole church, but I'm, I am when I get there. I'm going to have to get in some people's faces if they don't make a change, is what he's saying. When he says the very last line of verse 2, he says, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Now, if you haven't been here for, for uh, Second Corinthians for the whole time, w- what's taken place is that when Paul finished writing First Corinthians, he wrote the Corinthians and he says, I'm planning on coming to visit you. And uh, when I come visit you, we're going to have this, this great time together. Well, as can sometimes happen in life, this happened, that happened, and he was not able to come and visit them at that time. The false teachers jumped on that and immediately they began to say, well, you know, you can't trust him. He says one thing, he does another thing. How can you trust me? He doesn't keep his word. And uh, Paul defends that early on. But they're still accusing him of doing things just the way that you would do them in the world. So that's the first part. Now we come to verse 3, and this is what I really want to talk about today. And uh, so we're going to pick it up in verse 3. I'm going to read through verse 5. And he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war, and uh, I've underlined that word war, according to the flesh. For the weapons, underline the word weapons, and I want you to just uh, note that that is plural. Weapons of our warfare, some of your Bibles would say that we fight with. Either way, go ahead and underline that. Are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful. Underline that, however your Bible says it. For the destruction of fortresses. Uh, Some of your Bibles say stronghold. I like the term stronghold more. He says, we are destroying speculations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Underline that, the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now underline every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. As we, we get into this, we, we've all heard of this passage before, haven't we? If you've been around the church for any length of time, you've heard this. And many times what we do is we go right to the application and we, le- we take it out of its context. The context here is that Paul is responding to some false teachers and what they're doing. And uh, we're going to look at it today from the way that, that most of us will apply it, which is also equally valid. But we're going to talk about what's commonly referred to as spiritual warfare. If you believe the Bible, you come very quickly to the understanding that there is, in the unseen realm, there is a battle being waged. When you were born again, you were born into a battle. And uh, that battle is going to be relentless and ongoing. There is what we would call spiritual warfare. We've all heard of the term, haven't we? And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. And, and one of the things that we're going to find is that Satan is going to do anything that he can to destroy your life and my life. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that spiritual warfare today. I wish we could talk about every aspect of it. Maybe we'll take a few weeks after Corinthians to, to explore that a little bit more. 
but we'll just highlight some things and then move on. So there, there's, a, there's a few things that we need to know as we, we get into this. First of all, there in your outline, in uh, verse 4 it says the, uses the word warfare, uh, the, the weapons of our warfare, and uh, some of your Bibles will say the weapons that we fight with in the NIV, either way. And that word there in the original language, stratia, and, and it just means an expedition, a campaign, military service, or warfare, warfare. Now the, the reason this is important to understand is that this is not talking about a skirmish. It's, when you talk about an expedition or a campaign, it's something very lengthy. So here's what you want to write down. Our spiritual battle is going to be ongoing, ongoing. It's not a skirmish, it's ongoing. And this is where I stop and say, can I get a witness? And you go, yeah, oh yeah, yeah we've, we've all been there, we've all been there. In the unseen realm, as I said a few moments ago, Satan is out to destroy you. He would do anything that he can. And so there is this spiritual battle that goes on. The great lie that we tell ourselves is that, you know, if I was just a little bit more spiritual, I wouldn't have to deal with these temptations. I mean, if I was just a little bit more mature, I wouldn't have to deal with this. You know, I'd be overcoming. Nothing can be further from the truth. You see, the, the reality is that as you grow and you mature spiritually, you become more dangerous, we would say, to the enemy, which means that he's only going to respond by trying to attack even more. We all know some, some great Christian leaders who had wonderful ministries, and over a period of time through maybe neglect on their part through becoming lackadaisical, we, we don't really know. But they allowed themselves to succumb to that spiritual warfare to where now they find themselves in that place where their ministry is destroyed, their family is destroyed, lives are destroyed. And, and, and we look on and we say, why in the world? Well, here, here's why. Because as you become more effective, Satan goes to work even harder to bring you down. That you need to know that. You need to know that on the front end. So does that make sense? So, so it's not like you get more mature and it goes away. It never goes away. It never goes away. There'll always be that spiritual battle. So, so what does Satan do? Well, in verse 4, he says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of, my Bible says, fortresses. Uh, some of your Bibles say strongholds. How many of your Bibles say strongholds? I love the word stronghold. I, I, I think it's, a, it's a, the best way to say it. But the word stronghold there, I put it on your outline. I won't try to pronounce it in the original language, but it means a castle, a stronghold, or a fortress. It, it's, it's, uh, it's really dug in. So for our purposes today, when we consider strongholds, we're, we'll see that Satan, there in your outline, Satan sets up strongholds. So what is a stronghold? Well, very simply, uh, it's very simple. A stronghold is something that has a stronghold on us, something that has a stronghold on me. We, we tend to think in, in terms of strongholds as the, you know, the big ones that we all hear about. For instance, someone will say something like, you know, I, I have an addiction and that has a stronghold on me. Well, certainly that's a stronghold. Some would say, well, I, I, I have a, a, a pornography issue and that has a stronghold on me. I have a hard time shaking it. Some would say that. Some would say, I have a stronghold of anger. I, I, as much as I want to, I, I want to shake it, but it just has the stronghold on me. 
Another would say a stronghold of fear. You, you look around and you say, I know that the fears that I have of this situation, are they go beyond what any other person would have. And that, that would be a fear that would have a stronghold on us. And so you, there are those strongholds that we know about. Now, now strongholds tend to manifest themselves. Let me read verse 5. He says, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing. Some of your Bibles say pretenses, however your Bible says it. And then I want to highlight where it says, raised up against the knowledge of God. And it says, we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So as we read that, we, we see that strongholds manifest themselves, you want to write this down, as any argument, some of your Bibles would say speculation, however your Bible says it, against the knowledge of God. Any argument against the knowledge of God. It's important here to understand that Paul is writing to Christians. They are in the church. They got their issues, but they are in the church, they're Christians. Sometimes, even those of us who profess faith in Jesus, we can allow a stronghold to come into our life that, that is such that it raises itself up against the knowledge of God. So I'm going to share a couple of examples here. Uh, when it raises, when that stronghold raises itself up against the knowledge of God, what it does is it puts us in the position where we, whether we intend to or not, we're in that place where we're smarter than God. So, so as I share a couple of these things, it's not from the perspective of you people, but, it, but it's from the perspective of if you have this stronghold, you really need to think about it because it's raising itself up against the knowledge of God. So you ready? Like you mean it. <laughs> You're like, I don't know. <laughs> Can I get out now? Okay, here's one. Bible begins by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens the earth. Okay, and then a little bit later on he says, and here's the process. God said, let there be, and there, there was light. Okay, and then he just goes through it. God said, let there be, and there was. God said, let there be, and there was. And then you come to the New Testament, and several times in the Gospels, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, would say, since the beginning of creation. Since the beginning of creation. Now, sometimes those who profess to be Christian, whether they mean it or not, they just kind of pat Jesus on the head and say, I know Jesus, um, but here, here's, I know you, you believed in that, but, but here's the thing. We are much more enlightened now. We have more information than you had as the creator, God in the flesh. We, we've seen some things. And so now we believe in another process. And that other process that brought it into existence is the process known as, did you not know the word? <laughs> the process is evolution, absolutely. And so what we do, we, we have a stronghold that raises itself up against the knowledge of God because I can tell you that that belief system does not come from God or his word or Jesus speaking in the gospels. 
It comes from another spirit. Actually, that whole teaching comes from a group of people who completely reject the existence of God. They reject Jesus as God, Jesus as the Messiah, everything that you and I hold to. And so they have put forth this, put forth this theory. And, and for many of us, what we have allowed is the statements of unbelievers to go against and even above against the knowledge of God. And if that's the case, then you might find that that is a stronghold that you are embracing, which is against the knowledge of God. Now, in our Genesis 1 teaching, we, we talk about that. We've actually made some extra copies. If you want to find out the other side of the story, if, if you really look at evolution in just a few minutes uh, as we talk through it, you'll have a very hard time believing in that as the process. But for many professing Christians, that has become a stronghold that has raised itself up against the knowledge of God. Does that make sense? Uh, Another one would be, uh, somebody would say, well, you know, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except or but through me. So that's either true or it's not true. There are those who are professing Christians who now come to Jesus and say, well, Jesus, you know, I know that, that uh, you said that, but you know, I, don't, I think, you know, they're nice people. And so they, they, this is what they follow. You know, I follow what I follow. They follow what they follow. It's all good. We all kind of get there. And so what we've done is we allow that to become a stronghold in our mind And that raises itself up against the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God. And I can tell you that that belief system does not come from the Holy Spirit. It does not come from your Bible. It comes from another source. Another stronghold that many, many believers would have, and this is sort of one that we don't typically think about, but the the Bible from cover to cover talks about the importance of prayer. And how from example to example to example of how God moves, prayer, moves through prayer. Years ago, I used to cite a study that showed that, that the average pastor prays only three minutes a day. And then following up with that is if the average pastor prays only three minutes a day, how much less does the average parishioner? There are, although we see in the Bible that God works through prayer, and if we would all say, do you think prayer is important? We all give the Sunday school answer and we say, well, yes, I believe prayer is important. And yet if we were to look at our prayer life, we would say, well, the only time that I really pray would be like for a meal, maybe just before I go to bed. And uh, what we will say when our back is against the wall, we'll respond by saying something like, I, well, I, I live in the real world. I live in the real world. And I would suggest to you that there is a, real, a world that is much more real than what you and I see right here today. So, so many, many who would profess to be followers of Jesus, if they were to be very, very honest, there is a stronghold that is set up because if we believe that prayer really worked, we would spend more time praying. But the reality is somewhere deep inside, somebody has set up a stronghold in our life and that stronghold tells us that it's really not going to affect anything if you pray. So by and large, we as Christians do not emphasize personally praying. Does that make sense? 
And I can tell you that the belief system that says that prayer isn't really going to matter does not come from your Bible, does not come from the Holy Spirit. It comes from another source, but for many of us it's become that stronghold and it keeps us back from really entering into what God has for us. Now, for the Corinthians, the strongholds that they were battling were the strongholds that the the false teachers were coming in and teaching, and those were having effects on the belief system of the Corinthians, and they were becoming strongholds in their life. Verse 5, he says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing, however your Bible says it, raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so that tells us that the, the major battle spiritually, the major battleground spiritually is going to be in the mind because it's the knowledge that's against, that's against the, the knowledge of God. That it's taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So the major battleground for us spiritually is going to be in our mind. I love the quote that says, it's hard to fight an enemy who has outposts in your head, which is true. So arguments and and anything raised up against the knowledge of God. So how did those strongholds get there? Well, I'm going to give you the very, very short version. People write books about this. We just don't have time to to go through it. But but, uh, how do we get these strongholds? Sometimes, Sometimes we open a door and Satan takes the opportunity and he comes in. You see somebody who has an addiction. There was a certain point in their life where they opened the door and he came in and he just got a hook in there somehow. And over time, that became a stronghold as that door was open. Sometimes Satan uses things like emotional trauma. He will use extreme abuse. He will use a tragedy in our life. And those have a way of getting in there and shaping the way that we process reality. Sometimes uh, it just comes from you and I living and staying in an environment that continuously over time teaches things that are contrary to what we would say the knowledge of God, what, what God would say. And so because we hear it and hear it and hear it and we stay in that environment, over time we begin to believe not the truth of God, but we would say the lie of Satan. And so that's how that gets in there. So we understand that in, in areas like addiction, but it's also in other things where these strongholds get in and they become the filter for how we process reality. So if somebody's addicted, all of a sudden the way that they process reality is I need this in order to, to get to that place where I feel this way. If, uh, if, if it's a believing in evolution, th- that evolution becomes the, the filter by which we process what God says as opposed to processing that by what God says. So it becomes a stronghold. So how do we tear down a stronghold? Well, we have to recognize some things. First of all, on your outline, he says the weapons. And, and uh, I, I love that word weapons, it's plural. There's more than one. Of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. And the Greek word there is dunatos, for the destruction of fortresses, for the destruction of fortresses. When it says that the weapons that God gives us are divinely powerful for the destruction of, of, of fortresses, the, the idea is that these weapons, when used, are empowered by God. They're empowered by God to destruct, uh, demolish or bring destruction on those fortresses. What I love is the word where it says they're divinely powerful. Now the word there is dunatos, dunatos. 
And you'll hear that word. Uh, some people will say dunatos. Some people say duna my. And uh, one of the most popular ways of saying it is duna mus. Duna mus. And typically, if, if we were using the word dunamus, I'd say the word dunamus from where we get the English word, and everybody would say dynamite, dynamite. Well, actually, the word dynamite comes from the first part, which is duna, duna. So whether it's dunatos, dunamai, dunamus. And the reason for that, that word duna, uh, in those three ways, is sort of like us using the word run, ran, or running. It's the same word, it's just a little bit different, different flavor to it. So the idea is that God gives us those weapons literally to blow up those, those fortresses, and he uses that. So we demolish that. So go ahead and write this down. With our God-empowered weapons, we bombard the fortress with truth. We bombard the fortress with truth. So the weapons that Paul is talking about, they're not carnal, they're not fleshly, they're not human, they're not things like swords or spears. And to use these weapons, you get the sense that to use them, you, you have to renounce those earthly, fleshly weapons that we have. In the Corinthian church, as we've been traveling through, we've seen some of the weapons that the false teachers were using. They used things like manipulation, uh, the image of success, smooth words, oratory, we would say, lording it over the congregation or human reasoning. And, and so Paul said, I, I didn't do that. I operated in humility. And so the carnal way, the carnal way to do warfare is to lord it over, it's to manipulate, get the upper hand somehow. And Paul says, I didn't do any of that. I renounced those things. So the spiritual way is always to humble yourself. So we have just a few minutes, and I want to go through four weapons that we have. And then when we're done with 1 Corinthians, we'll come back and we'll talk about spiritual warfare a little bit further. Do you want to do that, by the way? Okay, good. Then we'll we'll do that. So weapons, plural. So first of all, the first one is humility. Humility. uh, Chuck Missler, one of my mentors, says, humility is bending your head low enough so that God can get a good shot at them. I like that. Here's what I've learned in my life. I've learned that when when people say bad things, they take the shot and they, you know, whatever it is they do to me, if I take the shot back, God has a way of saying, all right, Dan, you've got this, so I'll just step out and let you handle this. Does that ever work out for me? (laughs) No, it never does. I wish it would at least once. But if I say, you know what, I'm not going to respond back. I'm going to operate in humility. I'm not going to take the shot back, you know, and and I'm going to let the Lord work this out. Every time that I've done that, God has a way of stepping in and taking care of the situation a whole lot better than I could have. Now, I will tell you that God and I have had some very, very straightforward conversations uh, about how long he takes to actually do that. (laughs) And uh, so (laughs) I'm not always happy about that. The second one is the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. We'll explore this later on, but the Bible says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Why is it called a sword? Because it hurts. It hurts. It cuts. Remember when Jesus was being tempted by Satan? Every time Satan would bring a temptation, what did Jesus do? It is written. It is written. It is written. And and about after three times, Satan couldn't take it anymore, and he leaves. He leaves. He can't take it anymore. So when you say to that temptation, to that stronghold, this is the truth, here's what the Bible says, it is written, however you want to say that, that bombarding with truth dismantles that fortress. There's a, a verse there in your outline. Jeremiah describes it like this. He says, "Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock. I first heard this 25 years ago. He says, like a hammer that shatters the rock. 
And I was, I was in church and the pastor came up, we had all these bricks and he uses this verse and he pulls out a hammer, puts the brick out and he goes, it's like a hammer that shatters the rock and he hits it and nothing happens. Does he see anything happens? No, nothing happened. It says, so he starts going like a, like a hammer that shatters the rock and he says tap, 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 tap. And all of a sudden the brick breaks. And uh, the idea is they understood this thousands of years ago that when you take God's word, it's like a hammer that shatters the rock. Now, I did not use that illustration today because the way it works out for me, I would come up to use that illustration. I'd have the one brick in the universe that would not break and, and, and it would not go well. But it shatters it. It shatters it. You keep saying what God says. We'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks when we get there. Prayer. Prayer. Prayer is the heavy artillery. Jesus would say, or about Jesus and his ministry, in Mark one thirty five, he says, in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Later on it would say, but he himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. I didn't have space on, on the outline, but in Luke chapter 22, it says that he made his way to the Mount of Olives and it says, as was his custom. And that was the night that they arrested Jesus, as was his custom. They knew what he would be doing, and they knew where he would be, because that's just what he did. Jesus is God in the flesh. He felt that he needed to be prayed, prayed up, uh, be prayerful continuously to accomplish what it is that God had for him. If Jesus needed it, how much more do we need it? But for many of us, it's become a stronghold saying, it doesn't really work, so why bother? It matters. It works. So when you pray, very quickly, and we'll um, write this down, pray the promise, not the problem. Pray the promise, not the problem. God already knows, God already knows what the problem is. So pray the promise, not the problem. If you would like some promises that you can pray, just write the word promise on your connection card. Make sure we have your email address. We'll email those to you. And then number four, praise. Praise which is very simply, for us today, it's much broader, but here we'll just say giving thanks to God. From cover to cover in the Bible, God responds to people praising him. There's this great story in in the book of Acts where Paul the apostle, he's been beat up, he's been arrested, and he's been thrown in the dungeon, thrown in the prison. His situation is hopeless, he's been shackled by chains, he has no way of escape. And it's in the midst of that very painful situation that he can't get out of. He can't fix the situation. He chooses to begin praising God. And uh, notice there on your outline what it says. It says, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns about God. Is that what it says? What does it say? To God, to God. That's where it's praise. Not just singing hymns, but to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I love this part. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the underlying doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Paul, in the midst of a very painful situation where he was trapped, couldn't get himself out, he begins to praise God God responds by literally blowing the doors off his situation and releasing him from an impossible situation. 
there is incredible power in praise. We have a teaching on praise that, that we made extra copies. If you'd like to get that, you can get that at the CD library and uh, you can have that today. We are out of time, so I have to close in prayer. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll uh, take a few weeks and talk about that. Was that at least interesting today? Good, good. All right, well, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Father, for giving us weapons that are divinely powerful. And Lord, we know that even for some of us, there is a stronghold that doesn't believe that they are divinely powerful. And Father, we pray that as we use these, we would see your divine intervention as we destroy those fortresses that cause us to uh, believe things that have been raised up against the knowledge of God. I pray, God, that you would help us to be released from those things, free to go forward, help us to see truth, help us to walk in you. And then, Lord, I pray, keep us till we meet again, keep us safe over this weekend. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, God bless you guys, we'll see you next time.